This hearing is about taking one small step, a small step on a big issue which has been locked in partisan stalemate for seven years, health insurance. It is a step Congress needs to take by the end of this month. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Senator Lamar Alexander opening up the first bipartisan hearings on Obamacare in months. But the much-anticipated hearings are just one of two competing approaches to Obamacare in the Senate right now. And I'll be joined by my colleagues Adam Kankren and Jen Habercorn to discuss what's happening and what's next in Washington, D.C. Then after the break, I'll catch up with Yale economist Zach Cooper, whose latest work digs into some of the incentives driving up healthcare spending and the role that politicians play. His team's findings are fascinating, and you'll hear more about them later in this episode. Just a reminder, Pulse Check is available on all your favorite podcast apps. If it's not, let me know. Rate us, review us, share us. That's how new listeners can discover us. You can always find me at ddiamond.politico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter if you have suggestions for our show. And with that, let's hear from Adam and Jen about the Senate and Obamacare. I am joined once again by Adam Kankren, health reporter for Politico. How's it going, Dan? And Jen Habercorn, senior health reporter for Politico. Hi, Dan. Senior in title, not in anything else. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) We came back to Washington after the August break, and the Senate Health Committee held the first bipartisan hearing on fixing Obamacare in at least eight months, depending on how you think about it, maybe even longer. But Jen, we have two competing plans to either fix or replace Obamacare. Who are the teams and who's ahead in making progress on hitting their goal? So on one side, we have Lamar Alexander, the chairman of the Health Committee, working with Patty Murray, the top Democrat on the committee. They're obviously working on bipartisan plan. Um, Right now, they're looking at something very narrow to shore up Obamacare for next year. And then we have Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, both Republicans, who are trying to resurrect repeal. This wouldn't be a a total repeal, but it's in the direction of repeal and that it would be Republican only. Um, I would say there's momentum on the side of Lamar Alexander's plan right now because it is bipartisan. They've had a lot of people show up at their hearings and meetings, and it's generating some bipartisan interest. Um, Lamar Alexander is a big ally of Mitch McConnell, so if he actually gets something together, it's fair to assume McConnell uh, would be interested in moving that forward. But... um, Senators Graham and Cassidy have the White House behind them. Trump, uh, the president really wants, you know, a win on Obamacare. They're really pushing hard on it. There was supposed to be a big event with governors today, uh, Friday, to to roll out this plan, but that got postponed because of the hurricane. And, um, you know, they they feel like they need to make good on their promise, and they have this deadline of uh, September 30th to do that. So they're really pushing hard. So this is in some ways a proxy McConnell-Trump fight over Senate help and Lindsey Graham. Maybe, maybe not. You seem skeptical. Why don't we come back to that idea and just focus in first on the Senate help committee hearings, which were much anticipated, but in some ways significantly more boring than the high stakes ACA repeal fight that we've seen for months, though kind of refreshing in its routine to have the more uh, practical hearing with the insurance commissioners. Did we learn anything new from this week's help committee hearings, Adam, or was it just dredging up ideas that we already know about what's wrong with the ACA and how to fix it? 
Uh, well, no, I, I think we, we certainly learned some new things. Uh, one, it's possible to have a hearing that's calm and cordial and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and relatively productive uh, about Obamacare. Um, that was kind of a, revel- a revelation. Um, and, and second, uh, there were a lot of ideas thrown out there, some new, some old, um, from the state insurance commissioners and from the governors, um, things like a federal reinsurance program, um, things like um, making it easier for states to get waivers to kind of customize their markets to to their residents. Um, the question, though, is uh, whether any of those ideas will kind of make it into the stabilization package that uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray want to put together. Um, they only have about 10 days to come to a deal, and so it's got to be a very simple um, package that Alexander has said can't cost any new money um, in order to have a chance of passing what, what's still a Republican-controlled Congress. You've both mentioned this time pressure. Lamar Alexander wants to get things done ahead of the Obamacare open enrollment uh, in November, and specifically early enough that insurance companies can make plans by the end of September. I, I find this interesting. Lamar Alexander on the Republican side, Patty Murray and all the Democrats criticized the rush to repeal Obamacare. Now they're both rushing on their own legislation, although because it's bipartisan and essentially pro-Obamacare, all those loud progressive activists are, are holding their fire and instead cheering them on. But Jen, are they going to run out of time? You've seen Congress craft bills before. Can they do all of this and get the support they need in time to get this out? It's going to be tough. I mean, Lamar Alexander wants something by uh, September 27th because that's the date insurers have to make the final signature on their uh, contracts for next year. It's possible. I mean, this is going to be very, very narrow. Um, Alexander, um, as of now, the bill seems to be two years of cost sharing reduction money. The, um, Which Alexander didn't want. He only wanted he one wanted year. He wanted one. And two is kind of a concession to Democrats who've, who've really said one year is not enough. Um, as well as changes to 1332 waivers, which they have not fully described. Um, Democrats just really want to uh, speed up CMS approval. Republicans say they need some structural changes. That's kind of to be determined what that'll look like. And probably allowing um, the expansion of copper or catastrophic plans. But that's that's very narrow. That's not a huge piece of legislation. So it is possible to see that moving sometime soon. But you've made the point that even though it's narrow, there might not be a vehicle to attach mm-hmm. that legislation to. Because if you had it as a standalone, Republicans aren't going to rush to vote for right. an Obamacare fix. So now Republicans are eyeing an FAA reauthorization, which has to be done by September 30th. Um, or the CHIP legislation, the Children's Health Insurance Plan program. And um, that, I mean, we can discuss this further. In theory, that needs to be done by September 30th. Now some people are saying it doesn't have to be done by the 30th. It can uh, lapse a little bit. Um, So they are looking for vehicles. And, I mean, if if Alexander and Murray go to McConnell and say, look, we have 35 senators who, you know, are willing to put their name on this legislation right now, that assuming, you know, more would get on board, um, I don't know that a vehicle will be the thing that hangs, that this falls over. But that's interesting because the repeal effort that we saw a few months ago, there were 40-plus senators willing mm-hmm. to put their names on it, and that that was seen as so contentious. So if only 35 senators are stepping forward here, will it just fail on the floor? Well, so um, Alexander's goal is to have 30 senators um, 
not signing their name to something, but backing something Got in it. theory so that he can take it to McConnell. Because if you have 30 senators who are willing to go public and say, I support an Obamacare fix bill, you can assume that others would follow if it has a, a real shot. And one last piece here. You made this great point. With the Hurricane Harvey package, the Trump agreed to the Democrats' request on the debt ceiling, pushing that off. That was a win for Democrats in the macro sense. They got what mm-hmm. they wanted, but it took a package off the table where there was going to be a timely vote that they could have used. So in some ways, Democrats won, but in other ways, they may have set back this effort. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some Republicans who are privately kind of um, speculating that some people wanted a vehicle off the table for an Obamacare fix bill. The other plan that's moving forward, Graham-Cassidy, Lindsey Graham, Bill Cassidy, they still have to finish their plan, get it scored, get the votes. Is this a real replacement of Obamacare effort, or is it just a charade that Republicans who still want to say that they're repealing Obamacare, that they can just point to this? Well, I, I think if the text comes out and it's something that it's it's something that I, I will say that Republican senators have said we're willing to take a look at it. The outline sounds promising, um, but we obviously haven't seen you know the full text. Um, so I think you have a lot of senators who are kind of you know willing to be open minded about it. Um, there are a lot who would still love to get a repeal and replace you know plan passed and, and fulfill their promise, but they they also are kind of, you know, uh, aware of a lot of the ob- obstacles there. It's, you know, one, you would have to get this in text, scored, passed through the Senate, and then you would have to essentially have a deal with the House where they would just swallow this bill, you know, in full and not make any changes in order to, to hit the deadline. And we saw some leeriness this week from John McCain, who vaguely endorsed the idea of a plan moving forward from his buddy, Lindsey Graham, but then very quickly had to walk that back, either out of fear that he was throwing his name behind something that was controversial or just the activist pressure from people who say you're, you're walking back on your pledge that this needs to be regular order. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing here is um, Graham and Cassidy are not saying exactly what their bill would do right now. As of earlier this week, they were still changing it. And um, I mean, John McCain, part of his issue with the skinny repeal bill was that was processed, that it was rushed, it didn't go through committee. And I mean, if Graham Cassidy has any shot, it's going to be really rushed because it's, um, you know, early September and they want, they would need to do this by September 30th to keep the reconciliation process. So anything that they would do would be very rushed. And just to clarify that the Senate parliamentarian said budget reconciliation, which allows senators, Republican senators to have only 50 votes Mm -hmm. to pass Obamacare repeal, that expires September 30th. So that deadline is hanging over their head in a similar way that the deadline is hanging over Lamar Alexander's head, though theoretically, he's not as pressured if they needed more time to do the fix. Maybe they work out something with the insurance uh, companies. Curious if there is going to be any real momentum, though, to pick up Obamacare repeal after the brutal fights of the summer. One indicator, Majority Whip John Cornyn, who's the most optimistic senator, who's predicting constantly that the Senate was going to pass a repeal bill, and and he was constantly wrong. He didn't think that this bill would get a vote, um, though someone on Twitter reminded me because Cornyn was always wrong. The the fact that he's pessimistic here might actually be a sign of of (laughs) optimism. But is there any leadership attachment to the idea of voting on Obamacare repeal again? Well, McConnell has always said, if you give me a bill with 50 votes, I'll bring it up. 
And I mean, that kind of seems obvious. You need 50 votes here. Um, and Graham and Cassidy have both kind of, it was interesting. I asked Cassidy, are you close to 50? And he kind of nodded. Like it wasn't like a, yes, we are. He, he kind of did a, did a, a slight nod, like we're in the ballpark. I'm a little skeptical of that. But again, if they say we have 50 Republican senators who are willing to back our bill, um, McConnell's hands would be kind of be tied. He'd have like there'd be so much political pressure on him to bring that up. If, if Cassidy had been more visibly demonstrative, if he'd been like headbanging, yes, would that have convinced <laughs> you more, Jen, as an astute watcher of, of yes. Senate happenings? Yes, as an astute watcher of senators answering questions with nods and yes. <laughs> There's uh, a good question floating around about Cassidy specifically. I think John Chate of New York Magazine put this out and he's right. Cassidy months ago was the Republican who was going to ensure that coverage was protected, expanded. Now he is leading, helping lead the effort to repeal Obamacare. What happened there? Like, what's what's the story behind Cassidy? Was he consistent in his ideology? And it's just he was interpreted in different ways at different times? Or has he changed his modus operandi after staking out a pretty liberal position among Republicans about Obamacare months ago? Well, I, I think from a, a policy standpoint that he actually hasn't changed very much. If you go back and look at the Cassidy-Collins bill, you look at the early versions of the Cassidy-Graham bill that came out, I think, in, in the, at the beginning of August. Assuming nothing big changes, the concepts are still there. The whole idea is um, let's let the states choose what kind of health care system they want to have. Um, and so in the early outlines of this Graham-Cassidy bill uh, back in August, it was we were going to take all of the federal spending on Obamacare, block grant it, and just hand it to the various states to let them do what they want to do with it. Now, obviously, that doesn't guarantee, you know, every state will meet the Kimmel test um, where it protects, you know, pre-existing conditions, make sure everybody is taken care of. The Kimmel test when Bill Cassidy went on Jimmy Kimmel's show and said, this is what I need to see if it's going to have my vote. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it, it kind of fits his principles of, look, if you are happy with Obamacare, you can keep it. Uh, if not, try something new. Um, I will add that one complicating factor uh, to further complicate kind of, you know, getting something uh, on the floor this month is that uh, when you do that, now every senator has to go back and say, what will this mean for my specific individual state? And we saw the difficulties in, in figuring out what the consequences would be for these various other repeal and replace plans. Um, this likely would be even more complicated as it, just kind of trying to, to figure out what would happen. We're calling this repeal, but I think conservatives are not going to view this as repeal. Um, and I think that's important to know. This is not full repeal. This is this is block granting. It, um, Cassidy said this week that it would repeal the individual mandate penalties, employer mandate penalties, medical device tax, some of the other taxes, but it would keep a lot of Obamacare in place. So, um, you know, as as we think about how this plan would uh, get reaction from Republican senators if it actually comes out, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to watch is that, you know, do the conservatives view this as repeal? Because I could see some of them saying this is not enough. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot to dislike on kind of both sides of the aisle. Um, and that's, you know, yet again, kind of a, a difficulty. No one is going to be happy on Obamacare. That's kind of the rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. 
except for the health reporters who get to keep covering it in, until we die. <laughs> um, thinking about what comes next, there are going to be more Senate help committee hearings as they steam towards a bill. Adam, you've reported on this a bit. So what's what's coming next week for the Senate help committee? Sure. So you have uh, two more bipartisan hearings, and, and essentially the idea is they want to hear from other stakeholders, so insurers, uh, hospitals, providers, um, you know, patient advocates, uh, just to kind of get, again, their ideas for what should be in this package. But at this point, the outlines, like Jen had kind of said, are already defined. You know, it's going to be a, a very small bill, maybe only do a few things. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I think what really remains to be figured out is, is number one, whether Republicans and Democrats on the HELP Committee can strike a deal and one that may have broader appeal. Um, and, you know, from a, more of a detailed perspective, you know, what restructuring of Obamacare actually goes on that they can agree on? What what kind of, you know, guardrails can you test and still be able to get uh, the necessary votes? My last question. It's, it's September. We're doing what we do, it feels like, every month and talk about the big Obamacare fight, which has a way of being the eclipse in healthcare policy and blocking out all of these other worthy stories and events. What what have either of you seen or what are you tracking that is beyond this kind of big picture Obamacare fight? Jen? One thing, and this has gotten a little attention, but um, around the conversation on CHIP, there's definitely an effort underway to um, try to convince folks that CHIP doesn't have to happen by September 30th, that it could be pushed off even further. This is the Children's Health Insurance Program funding. Right. And um, the funding is supposed to essentially run out on September 30th, but every state is a little different and has a different amount of money. And um, Republicans, particularly in the House, are trying to convince folks that this can this can wait. And it's really freaking out CHIP advocates, somewhat rightfully so. I think the CHIP advocates sometimes get viewed as raising a five-alarm fire over everything. But I think this might be a legitimate concern that you know, if if Republicans do try to push this off, that there's going to be real impact on policy, that states are going to have to start notifying um, enrollees that the funding might run out, they might lose their coverage. So I think this is something to watch. I haven't seen this happen before on a CHIP plan, and it's usually very bipartisan, and they're able to get it done even despite the Obamacare antics. So that's something that I'm looking out for. Adam? Um, and I'll point to uh, there was a, an article in the last issue of Health Affairs uh, that studied essentially um, this phenomenon of hospitals uh, buying or acquiring small physician practices and how it's something that's been kind of happening all throughout the country and it's it's essentially entered in less choice of hospitals or less choice of providers um, for patients and it's not really something that antitrust regulators can do anything about it. Now, that's all kind of complicated and wonky. The implication is uh, when we get to a broader discussion on how to control costs within the healthcare system. There was a lot of allusion to that the last uh, help hearing on how do we kind of tackle the broader rising cost of healthcare. Um, one of the issues that's going to be looked at is um, the increasing lack of choice among providers and also the increasing lack of choice uh, among insurers. And, and those are two aspects that, if we ever get past uh, this fight over Ob- Obamacare, are going to be kind of central to the, uh, the health care landscape. The story that I've been watching, and, and it's a story that I watch with a little bit of jealousy, because I wish I had written this story two years ago in my, in my past life before focusing more on, on health care politics and policy, but it was Stat's story on Watson. I don't know if 
either of you got a chance to see it. You're nodding, so I guess you did. But Adam, to your point about spending in healthcare, Watson, this much-hyped technology that's going to help doctors do better diagnoses, and you know, he, Watson, the computer, appeared on Jeopardy, and there are ads constantly about how magical it's going to be revolutionizing healthcare. Stats Exposé basically said it's just a glorified box that physicians either turn to occasionally or tells them what they already know. And for the most part, it's it's not really an AI. There are doctors in New York at, I think, Memorial Sloan Kettering were like inputting stuff. Um, and and uh, Stat had the good analogy of the man behind the curtain, you know, operating the magical machine. It, it was a good reminder of while as much as people want to get behind these optimistic ways of revolutionizing healthcare, this stuff is hard. And even something like Watson, which has IBM behind it, and IBM's made all of these acquisitions to build up the Watson brand, it still isn't delivering per the stat expose. So I thought that was good journalism, but also a thing that I wish I had written because everyone in healthcare kind of knew this. And, and it contributes to, you know, physicians complain all the time about, uh, you know, overregulation, all of these, you know, kind of requirements. They have to do all these inputs and things that essentially take them away from the patient. And, and that's kind of a, you know, a good example. And kind of the question there is, um, do you go the deregulation route where you just streamline a lot of that and don't worry about oversight? Or do you keep pushing and try and find a better, more accurate way of doing it. I don't, I don't think there's an answer at, at this point yet. Who's, who's happy in healthcare right now? You've got physicians who are upset <laughs> about regulation. You've got chip advocates worried about losing their funding. Uh, you've got the health insurers, which are unhappy about the health insurance tax that they want repealed. That's like emerged as a big lobbying priority. Yeah. Who, who's happy? Are healthcare journalists happy? I mean, there's so many stories to write. I, I'm pretty satisfied. Um, I think everyone in healthcare can find something to complain about. You know, for a while, progressives were very happy that the Obamacare repeal effort failed, but they're keeping up the five alarm fire um, as as repeal gets these kind of flames of attention. So they're not happy. They sprung into a massive action when John McCain's comments came out this week. I mean, I was it, it was like old times, and by old times, I mean a month and a half ago. Um, well, we will we will conclude on the optimistic note of. Some people out there must be happy in healthcare. <laughs> uh, we are happy to join you, and I'm happy that both of you are here. So, Adam, Jen, great to catch up with you again. Thank Thanks, you. Dan. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And just a reminder if you like Pulse Check, the podcast, you will love Pulse, the newsletter. Go to politico.com slash politicopulse. You can get a free subscription to our daily healthcare newsletter, tracking what's happening in policy, politics, and around the industry for healthcare. Zach Cooper is a Yale economist whose work digs into the incentives driving up healthcare spending and the role that politicians and other shadowy players sometimes play in our healthcare costs. I caught Zach on the road and we talked about his team's latest work and what they found about emergency care, too. We've known each other for a while. I've, I've interviewed you on stage in D.C. Your colleagues are hosting me this fall. But I'm curious, Professor for the elevator pitch of your work, if we were meeting at a cocktail party, how would you describe your focus? Yeah, I think the way I describe my focus is using big data and economics to understand why healthcare in the U.S. is so expensive and why it's going up over time. Um, so what I really want to do in my research is try to produce scholarship that moves public policy, um, whether that's looking at issues about how hospitals compete or, or how hospitals set their prices looking at things like how the, the political process in the U.S. actually influences what we spend or, 
or drilling in into specific companies and and looking at whether or not they're doing good for patients. It's really using data to try to see why we spend $18,000 a year on health insurance premiums and how we can potentially make that more productive in the future. I want to talk about a pair of recent papers you worked on, both fascinating on this issue and one that I'd just never seen before. It's really the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast. And that's a paper that just appeared in the past week. You and your colleagues traced how a provision inserted in the Medicare Modernization Act, so that landmark 2003 bill, which was contentious and, and took all night to pass through the House, how a provision added to that led to changes in hospital spending and maybe not for the benefit of patients. And to my read, Zach, this is the first major paper I've seen that traced the connection between politics, hospital spending, overall healthcare behavior. How did you decide to settle on that MMA provision? How did you come to it? I just would like to know the origin of even thinking to go down this route. Yeah, it's actually a really funny story. The idea, 100% honestly, came from a student. So I was I was a teaching assistant in, in London at the London School of Economics where I was getting my PhD. And one of my students at the time had been a, a Senate staffer. And we were chatting about health policy. And, and she actually mentioned this sort of rumor from when she was up on, on the Hill about this provision that had gotten inserted into the, the you know, Part D legislation that was really put in to try to get legislators to vote for a law that the lot on the right were having trouble voting for. And she had told us about this provision, and this was like six years ago. And it took a very, very long time to, to unpack it. And eventually what sort of snowballed into sort of thinking about this link between really what you need to do in Congress to pass these very, very big pieces of, of social policy legislation and how ultimately that feeds out downstream into the healthcare space. And I think the sort of big takeaway from our paper is when we talk about healthcare spending in the U.S., we often talk about these sort of technocratic drivers of spending, um, the adoption of new technology, uh, financial incentives in the system through payment reform or, or, or market dynamics. What we're trying to unpack here is that, you know, maybe a lot of, you know, and you've written about this, actually, maybe part of the reason we struggle so much with constraining healthcare spending actually has to do with the politics. And in this case, the, the really close link between how Medicare sets its payment policies and, and some of the, the games that politicians play um, and the electoral process. Let's talk specifically about what you and your colleagues found. So this was a provision to allow hospitals to apply for higher wages, essentially. There's a wage index that's part of Medicare. Hospitals get a fair amount of money through how they're classified if they're in an area that theoretically, like in New York City, where the wages might be higher than in some rural county in Alabama, there's an inflation, uh, inflationary component that gets built in so hospitals in these well-off areas get more money to compensate for their higher uh, wage staff. Can you can you explain for listeners what you found in terms of this provision and specifically how that impacted hospital behavior? So, so you're absolutely right. So the Medicare prospective payment system is, is this program that's really based on the wage index where the hospital is located. And this provision was inserted after the first vote in the House on the Medicare Modernization Act. And it basically gave hospitals the chance to apply to CMS to get their wage index changed. And about 300. And I should clear, yeah. I, I just want to jump in, Zach, for folks who don't remember this. That first vote in, in the House, or that vote in the House on 
the MMA, was brutal. Uh, it went all night. I think you pointed this out in your paper. Cheney, uh, Vice President Cheney at the time, was on the floor bending votes. I mean, it was very much like what we saw this year with the attempts in the House and the Senate to pass a controversial bill. Like every tactic was being deployed. And there's you know amazing reporting on it from the time. You know these these votes that went early into the morning, arm twisting. There were you know several ethics inquiries that sort of flowed out of the the passage of of this law, and ultimately the thing got passed by a one vote margin. So hugely close. And and at the end of the day, it was really really important to keep Republican members of Congress on side. So keeping their vote, keeping them from defecting, ended up being critical. And what we saw was this provision, Section 508, created a pathway for hospitals to apply for a one-time change in their Medicare payment that was supposed to expire after three years. And it created this process that basically gave the executive branch, it gave the, the health secretary, tremendous discretion over who got these waivers. And so literally it said that hospitals had to meet criteria such as quality as defined by the health secretary, right? Rules that are big enough that you could drive a, you know, a tanker truck right through it. And what we ended was that if you had a member of Congress representing a hospital who voted yes to this law, that your hospital was considerably more likely to get approved for one of these waivers. And if they got a waiver, it generated about a 10% increase in their Medicare payments. And that's a very, very large change. So the, the provision budgeted about a billion dollars over three years to fund this, and then it was supposed to sunset out. And what we ended up doing is using this as this really unique opportunity to see what happens when you pay a hospital more, because that's really one of these big questions. You know, The Affordable Care Act makes a fair bit of savings by reducing over time Medicare payment rates. Well, what happens if we did the opposite? What happens if we increase it? And the answer is, is I think, pretty fascinating. So they increase activity. So when you pay a hospital more, they do more stuff. They see more patients. They hire more people, in particular hiring more nurses. And you can actually see the spike in hiring in the county where these hospitals who got these waivers were located. But there were some things we didn't expect. So there was a, a dramatic increase in the adoption of technology. So the hospitals used the money to, to buy kit. And then there was a spike in this pay of CEOs at this hospital. And that one was, was fairly concerning because this hospital CEO who got one of these waivers didn't do anything any differently, right? They just sort of presided over a change in Medicare policy and they ended up seeing hundreds of thousands of more dollars. And when we tracked this through from 2005 to 2010, this provision incidentally was extended several times all the way through to 2012. These hospitals were spending about a billion dollars more during that period than we would have otherwise expected them to spend. And you know, I think you can ask this question, is this just a small provision? Why do we care? Well, it turns out that 40% of hospitals in the US have had some form of wage index change. 90% are not based on the original legislation that defined how the hospitals were supposed to be paid uh, prospectively. So it turns out a lot of hospitals in the US are paid through some form of, of sort of carve out, opt out, um, um, switch that gets them more money. And, and the scale of this is really fairly phenomenal. To play the other side of this, though, aren't there sometimes good reasons to boost the wage index? You, you could have a hospital on one side of the street, a hospital on the other side of the street, and because the line going down the center of the street puts them in two separate uh, MSAs, 
which is how the wage index is, is calculated, one of those hospitals could be at a major competitive disadvantage compared to the other, right? I mean, I, I get that it's also like the butter battle book from Dr. Seuss where both sides keep building up and when one gets a wage boost, the other doesn't. But in the short term, if these hospitals are coming with a case, there are times when they are in need of a wage boost. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And I think setting, you know, this gets into some of the, the wider issues about how you regulate prices. And and you get into just these issues, that it's very, very hard to have two hospitals nearby paid at different rates when when the market would, would not do that. Um, the flip side is Section 508 um, wasn't about subtle policy and, and addressing two hospitals that were, were nearby. In fact, it was explicitly made to raise the, the wage index for hospitals that didn't qualify under any other provision. And these were fairly, in, in my view, absurd changes. So there was a hospital, as a, as a Vermonter, I can speak about this one um, you know, passionately. There was a hospital in Burlington, Vermont, that for the purposes of its wage index was reclassified into Boston. Uh, there's no way the labor market in Burlington, Vermont, looks anything like the wage index, the, the labor market in, in Boston. And there were all sorts of, of very, very crazy changes that resulted in hugely high um, payment increases. So my own you know, university, Yale New Haven's Hospital, is for the purposes of uh, uh, Medicare payments based on Long Island. Um, so these aren't really hospitals that are you know, proximate where you're sort of smoothing some rough edges. These are dramatic changes in payments that I think are written, you know, when you read the, the Federal Register, the, the sort of justifications for these, you know, aren't quite that the hospital has, you know, 10 stories and 96 windows, but they're fairly close to being these very, very specific rifle shots. And I think what's fascinating when we look back over Medicare policy in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, any time we see some of these big pieces of legislation passed, we see some of these changes that are in many cases, named after senators. So we'll see Luger counties as an example. We'll see things like the Bay State Boondoggle. Yeah, Indiana. exactly. Um, we'll see the Bay State Boondoggle in Massachusetts, where the the floor for payments were set um, on the basis of hospitals in Nantucket. Um, and so well, he, I think I think that was one that John Kerry didn't want to be named after him. And and the Bay State though, that was an embarrassing episode in the ACA uh, aftermath, I believe. Right. No, exactly. And you know, then there was the you know the Cornhusker kickbacks. So I think there are all of these really, I think, fairly egregious uh, shifts in Medicare policy that are, you know, I think part of this log rolling process. They're into these pieces of legislation to try to get members to. To come on board. Now, I think big picture, you, know, you might say maybe these are justified in the interest of getting something like Medicare Part D passed. The challenge is what we really show in this paper is something that was meant to be 900 million and persist over three years becomes very, very hard to pull out of the books. So once you sort of increase the Medicare spigot, you open it up and, and increase payments. Well, because healthcare is the most heavily lobbied industry in America, those hospitals don't want to see those payments get reduced. And so in this case, the, the hospitals that got these 508 waivers formed a 508 coalition that ended up spending significant sums of money lobbying members of Congress to have this thing extended. And it was continuously extended over time. You had senators coming out talking about how imperative it was to, to keep these waivers in place going forward. And when you start seeing these 508 provisions in other, you know, in other forms, we begin to then have you know, hundreds of hospitals that are paid substantially more than they otherwise should be 
um, that we really can't correct. And we see these very, very large distortions. And I think ultimately, this is the, the challenge of having regulated payments. And this is the challenge of having the, the sort of payment setting process voted on by members of Congress who then have to go back to their districts and, and get votes. And what they really care about is the, you know, rightly, the, the needs of their constituents. And they don't really care about, in a sense, the, the funding is coming from those inside and outside of, of the folks they represent. It's, it's much easier to say, I helped university hospital in our district get more money, hire more nurses, than say, I helped pass this major piece of legislation that maybe you as an average voter uh, won't, won't see the benefits for a while. I, I want to go to this behavior that you identify, though, Zach, given the ability of pork barrel spending in, in so many different fashions, but specifically in healthcare, do you think Congress should have the power to be inserting these provisions and ultimately not always benefiting the U.S. healthcare system? No, I mean, simply put, I mean, I think it, it gives, you know, take take interest rates in the Fed as an example. You know, we, we basically said that interest rates were sufficiently complex, sufficiently important that we would take them out of the hands of politicians. And, you know, I think that's something that we need to think very, very seriously about when it comes to Medicare payment policy. Right. Do we really want to have the Oncologist Association be able to donate to members of Congress that affect the way oncologists get paid? And, and so I think there is a very, very strong argument for creating an arm's length body that decides Medicare payment policy and uses the best evidence we have to form payments. Now, that was in part what, what IPAB in the Affordable Care Act was, was sort of inching towards. The Independent Payment Advisory Board, the very embattled IPAP. Exactly. Um, that never never got off the ground. Um, but I think that, you know, some Federal Reserve equivalent in healthcare is probably a fairly good idea if we are really going to have the government set payment rates for hospitals. Because otherwise, you really just open this up to, you know, in a sense, a, a form of cronyism that I think is just not working in, in ultimately in the country's best interest. I thought it was it was amusing in a sense. Uh, you mentioned the coalition that formed to try and protect the 508 payments. And one of their big arguments, this was five or six years ago at this point, but one of the big arguments they made was cutting off that spigot, losing those payments would force hospitals to lay off staff, which obviously is not a winning political uh, issue if you're blaming your congressman for layoffs at a hospital. But of course, they hired those staff after they got the money in the first place. Let's shift to another paper that you worked on, also very interesting, and we'll talk about it a little more quickly, the focus on hospitals and emergency care, and specifically how the system is being gamed there. Can you sum up the findings that you and your colleagues found? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've seen in the 2000s is is a pretty dramatic increase in, in inflows through emergency departments to such an extent that right now, if you go around to the average hospital, but half of the patients admitted at any one time who were in the hospital came through an emergency department. And hospitals are under tremendous pressure to get their emergency departments to operate efficiently. And so what they've started doing is outsourcing and bringing in public or, or private companies to come in and manage these ED services. And, you know, I think in parallel, what we've seen as EDs have, have come under more pressure is this issue of balanced billing and surprise billing, where a patient who's privately insured goes to a hospital that's in his or her insurance network, but gets treated by a physician who's not participating 
in the network of their insurer. And these patients risk getting a very, very large bill. And Libby Rosenthal wrote about this in the New York Times a couple of years ago. And she really documented these heartbreaking stories, but she didn't quantify how frequently it occurred. And so we got this very, very large data set and found that it was happening 22% of the time. So in 22% of cases, patients went to an in-network hospital but were treated by an out-of-network physician and potentially faced hundreds or in some cases thousands of dollars in bills. What was fascinating is the Times reported on it, and the president of the American College of Emergency Physicians basically called my result ludicrous. I mean, she, she was hugely aggressive um, in a way that really surprised me. And a couple of weeks later, it turned out that the, the president of the American College of Emergency Physicians, is, we, we found out, was the, the executive vice president of a company called EM Care. And EM Care is really the largest physician staffing company in the U.S. And we started really looking more into EM Care in part as a response to, to really her, her sort of pushback in our paper. And it turns out that EM Care has really embraced balanced billing as part of their strategy, it would seem. So what we show is we look at where EM care enters hospitals in the U.S. And within the year of EM care taking a contract at a hospital, they're going to increase the rates of out-of-network billing by 81% or percentage points. So basically, they go in and just take their physicians out of network. They're going to raise the payment rates, the, the, the prices they set by about 117%. They're going to do more imaging studies, more lab tests. They're going to increase the rate that a patient gets admitted to the hospital by about 21%. And then what was also equally disturbing was that after this company enters a hospital, you're 43% more likely to get coded using the most high-acuity billing codes. And you know, I think at the end of the day, this poses a, a really large threat to the average patient. Right? We know that basically 40% of the American public can't afford a $400 surprise bill without basically selling assets or taking on debt. And strategies like the one that this company seems to be pushing are really exposing patients to, to pretty fundamental risk. And so we wrote about this and, and then offered some solutions to, to try to fix the issue. I'm amused by how e incentives, even in this case, uh, <laughs> drove the reaction and the follow-up study. The head of the American College of Emergency Physicians lashes out because she's part of the EM care uh, universe. And your curiosity in that response led your follow-up report uh, that looked at EM care specifically. One question I have for you, Zach, is about, again, the, the billing codes. You, you mentioned this, the ability of physicians to charge at higher levels. How much abuse is happening with physicians, essentially, and, and systems, gaming the billing system and trying to get payments that perhaps they shouldn't be getting for treating patients? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the sort of $100 billion question. Um, you know, is a, is a high acuity billing code justified or not? Um, I, in a sense, in this case, the way I can sort of frame that we think that it's problematic is we looked at patients who were very, very sick, and we looked at patients who had basically no historical spending and no history of any diseases. And both groups were about equally more likely to be billed using this high, high acuity code. And I know it's something that HHS has been looking into over time, um, that you know, when you have 
you know, these, these five or six different codes you can use for the same service that, that pay more based on the acuity, there's a tremendous incentive for physicians to, in some instances, nefariously increase the, the coding practice. You know, do I think it happens everywhere? No. I, I think at the end of the day, most physicians are, are doing the best they can and, and playing within the rules. I think the challenge in this space is we end up seeing some of these companies come in and realize that it can be tremendously lucrative. Um, the flip side, and I think one of the things that I'm most proud about this paper is that in a sense, this is, I think, a space where researchers can and should operate, where we can use our data to shine a spotlight. Um, we can sort of put the results out there, step back, and then allow, whether it's federal regulators or state regulators or the market itself to step in and say, is this good or bad? You know, I can provide the results and then we can leave it up to you know, say the Department of Justice to look at these results and determine whether or not they think uh, a crime is, for example, being committed. That's not for me to say, but I'm sure there are you know, regulatory bodies out there who are, are looking at our results pretty closely right now. If there's a connective tissue between these two papers that we just talked about, it's that the healthcare system is incredibly opaque. There are lots of loopholes for powerful interests to either go through or take advantage of. And that has real consequences for healthcare spending in, in ways that sometimes aren't scrutinized enough. But thank you for scrutinizing them. And thank you for joining Pulse Check today, Zach. It was great to talk to you. And I'll see you soon. Thanks for having me on. That's it for Pulse Check today. Thanks so much to Bridget Mulcahy for producing from the studio, Zach Cooper for reaching us from the road, and Adam Kankerin and Jen Habercorn for making time on an early Friday morning. You can find Pulse Check in all the usual haunts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. My favorite podcast app is Overcast. You can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.